When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, He ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defence. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. He replied, My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to them, speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked, get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. 
My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptised and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison them, to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr, Stephen, was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him! He's not fit to live! As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realised that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Thanks, Carol. That was a long one. I uh, realised that I neglected to interview our preacher, who's our guest preacher. We've had a few young guest preachers over the last six weeks, which has been great, and we've saved the best for last. No offence, Alex. Um, So (laughs) Oliver's here today. Oliver, come forward. Um, Can you tell us a bit about your family? Yep. Uh, So I'm married to Kezia. How long? Eight and a half months. She doesn't know, so... <laughs> She's yep. an actuary. <laughs> yep. Um, and there was someone here a couple of weeks ago who had a striking resemblance to you. Who was that? Yeah, uh, my twin brother. I'm, I'm sure he did a good job. Now, uh, he follows preaching. an awesome NRL team, but you follow a better one. Who do you follow? I'm a proud Penrith supporter, yeah, um, so I can say that now because they're winning, but... Yeah, yeah. they're good. Um, what do you do through the week for work? Uh, a few things. Um, so I work currently as a... 
canine handler slash teacher's aide um, at Oran Park, uh, which is really cool. And I also work at St Peter's in Campbelltown doing before and after school care. Cool. Um, more college. Are you considering going to more college, Oliver? Lady Sheds? That's a crazy question. Um, in the last two weeks, I've had a bit of a wild two weeks, uh, considering what how, and how I can serve uh, the kingdom. Eventually, um, my aim was to get into chaplaincy um, within a school, um, but I've been challenged to think how can I serve God now uh, and whether that means going to college earlier than I maybe expected. Cool. Yeah. Well, we'll be praying for you. Um, grab your stuff and I'll hand over to you. Thank you for blessing us this morning, Oliver. Keep your Bibles open, friends, at Acts 21, 22. We'll just check this works. How good. All right. As you guys just know, uh, my name's Oliver, uh, and I have the great privilege this morning of bringing God's Word to us today. Uh, this is the last sermon in the book of Acts we're going to do for a while. Um, so please keep your Bibles open. As you guys know, it is a big passage. Now, the first question I want to ask you today is, are you comfortable? Maybe, are you comfortable in these chairs? Maybe. But, are you comfortable in the gospel? Have a think about that. Are you comfortable in the gospel? And how do you recognise if you are comfortable in the gospel? Now, it sounds like a bit of a strange question, but when I say comfortable in the gospel... I say, in a sense of being maybe a bit complacent. Uh, here in Australia, we live pretty comfortably. Uh, described as a government from by the government, uh, as a safe, prosperous and friendly nation with a relaxed culture, uh, people who fall under the banner of Christianity can have it pretty easy too. We can tell our workmates about Jesus, we can tell our classmates about Jesus, without the threat of any severe persecution. We can meet here at church each week and we can continue to meet at each other's houses for growth groups. Yet in this passage today, it is the complete opposite of comfortable. Both displayed by the Jewish people and the Roman authorities, we'll see that their systems do not adhere with Christ. And Paul continues to go resolutely towards Jerusalem, ultimately to his death in Rome, but with persecution always on his doorstep. So, with this in mind, let me pray and ask God to help us this morning. Lord God and Heavenly Father, as we read your word today, be at work in us by your spirit. Amen. Uh, so, a bit of context for this sermon. Last week, Adam took us through the section before this one, describing the way in which Paul was continuing to go to Jerusalem, despite, some lot, despite lots of repeated warnings from both the disciples of Tyre, Agabus the prophet, and Philip the evangelist. But Paul continued towards Jerusalem, and they all prayed that the Lord's will be done. Now, when Paul gets to Jerusalem, he doesn't encounter persecution right away. They are actually warmly welcomed by all those people in Jerusalem, as you can see in verse 17 of chapter 21. But then Paul reports all that is being done among the Gentiles. As that joyous news is given, a warning is also received. Many Jews who have been saved are supporting Paul, but many Jews are also angry at Paul. They feel very threatened by this ministry that he's giving. They're under the impression that Paul, as he welcomes Gentiles into the kingdom, 
does not consider the Jewish law to be important. And that's specifically the law of Moses. But Paul does demonstrate that he does uphold the law by um, taking a vow with four other men. So that's what he does. Now, throughout the book of Acts, if you guys know the book of Acts well, we can see that Paul is consistently in a mess. No matter where he goes, he's always persecuted for proclaiming the gospel. So what I'm going to do today is not specifically look at chunk by chunk, but look at how people react to the gospel. We're going to look at the Jews, the Romans, and then I think we're going to look more widely at us. So if you're a note taker, um, we're up to our first point, uh, the gospel versus religious complacency. From verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. As we can see, the Jews from the province of Asia are the ones rolling up the crowds. Now, Paul mentions three things in verse... uh, They mention three things about Paul in verse 28. They mention that he's against the people, the law, and the place. That is, the temple. Now, this is pretty common throughout the book of Acts, and in chapter 15, they accuse Paul of those very things. Unless you are like a Jew, they say, unless you uphold the law, unless you keep the temple, you cannot be saved. But note also how they do it. They call each other and the people around them fellow Israelites. They actually personalise the attack so that people would get more upset with Paul for going against the systems that they have put in place. They developed an insecurity within their own system and pure assumptions are actually enough to enrage a whole crowd. Now, we meet Trophimus in this passage, but he's also in chapter 20. But there's an issue with Trophimus that they have. He's a Gentile. Now, Gentiles weren't allowed into certain parts of the temple and according to the Jews, this is what was written on the inner courtyards. If any foreigner is past this point, they will suffer death. It's pretty blunt. But that type of persecution against Gentiles isn't new, and even specifically against Jews who know Christ. What is encountered by Paul here is the same as what Stephen had in Acts chapter 6, ultimately leading to his death, being dragged out of the city and stoned. And as the gates are shut, the uproar and commotion continues, but it goes higher up the chain. From verse 31, while they were still trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the riders saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, 
he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. Now, with the whole city in uproar and Paul leading to almost certain death here, the Roman troops come and save Paul. And as Agabus in chapter 21 prophesied, Paul is bound with two chains. Now, it's at this point in the book of Acts where one commentator just says this. This is the final rejection of the gospel by those in Jerusalem as it goes out to the ends of the earth. From here, as we'll see in the rest of Acts, this is the last time Paul is in Jerusalem on the way to Rome. Now, the Jews have rejected the one who has come to proclaim the gospel. Their complacency within their own system has meant that they have rejected him. And not only rejected Paul, but they've rejected the Messiah. And as we'll see later on in our passage, Paul proclaims a message that is so, so clear, but they just miss the point. Now, similarly to the Jews, the Romans who were overseeing the area at the time show their own complacency in their own way. So we're up to section 2, the gospel and political complacency from verse 35. The violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. Show me down verse 37. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Note here that the Roman authorities would not have been proficient in either Hebrew or Aramaic. So the disconnect with the language barrier means that they had to take him away to try and figure out what he had done or if he had done anything wrong. But it takes a sharp turn with Paul asking a seemingly strange question. May I say something to you? Now imagine the scene. There's a, the whole of Jerusalem is in uproar. Paul is getting dragged to safety and he says, may I say something to you? It's a bit, a bit crazy that Paul can do that. But there was something about Paul that the Roman officials may not have known. Paul can speak Greek, which was the common language of the Roman Empire at that time. And Paul also says that he's a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia. In other words, there is no doubt that Paul is a Jew. But he is also Roman in his speech. So obliging, the Roman commander gives him the all clear to speak. Like I've said before, we're going to look at his speech in a minute, but let us jump down to the response of the Romans in verse 24. Verse 24 says, He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. And halfway through verse 25, Is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and is uncondemned? I'm going to give you like 20 seconds to think. Is this familiar to you? Who else had this happen to them? I'll give you a minute to think. Now, just as Paul here is flogged and interrogated, 
so too was Jesus. By the same system of authority, he undergoes the same punishment for proclaiming the gospel. Now, Paul is willing to go to Jerusalem and suffer, as we saw last week, but he points out the unlawful nature about what's going to happen. Now, I'm no expert on Roman law, but this is what a commentator says about the Roman law of the time. The Romans had a law that if any magistrate did chastise or condemn a free man of Rome without hearing him speak for himself and deliberating upon the whole case, he should be liable to the sentence of the people. What the Romans are doing here in bounding Paul and about to lash Paul is they're calling for their own punishment to be done to them. But they refrain as Paul speaks, fearful of what would occur, realising that Paul does, in fact, hold a Roman citizenship. Now, in the last two sections, we've seen the Jews and the Romans failure to understand Paul's preaching. But this next section is for all of us. How do we respond when the gospel is proclaimed? So, section three, the gospel versus sinners. From verse one of chapter 22. Brothers and fathers, listen to my defence. When they heard him speak in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of the way to their death, arresting both men and women throwing them into prison, as the high priest and all the council can testify themselves. I even obtained letters from their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Now, the Jews here wouldn't be expecting Paul to declare what he's about to do in Aramaic. Earlier on, we learned that the Jews specifically said three things against Paul. Now, one of those things was against the people. So, by Paul declaring himself... To speak in Aramaic, he's saying that he's just like one of them. Now, trained by a man called Gamaliel, he also describes himself as zealous. In Philippians chapter 3, you can see why. Now, some of you might know, as Gav pointed out, I'm a sports fan. Uh, not just NRL, but cricket. Now, one of the all-time things that I would love to do is meet the Australian cricket team. Let's take example, Steve Smith. Now, Steve Smith is a batter and former bowler of the Australian cricket team, but not only imagine meeting this man, but training under him for four years. You can study the ins and outs of how he plays, his movements and what he thinks about the game. Now, ultimately, the way you would think about cricket, the way you would think about this sport, would be a mirror of what he's done. If you were to train under anyone under the law, to live zealously, the rabbi Gamaliel was the one to do it. He was the PhD equivalent of a Pharisee. But on the back of Paul's thorough teaching by Gamaliel, he is the one who is persecuting the followers of the way, all the way to their death. And if we read in Acts chapter 9, this is the story of Paul's conversion. And he's using the Jews' own system to prove his case about why they should listen to him. 
Now, from here, Paul does provide more and more evidence to say that he is the one that they must listen to because of the good news that he has. So, reading on from verse 6. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because of the brilliance of the light that had blinded me. Now, walking on his way to Jerusalem to persecute those who were establishing the church, the one who is their saviour blocks his way. He falls to the ground and recognises that he is the Lord. Truly, his pride in what he was doing has been removed, falling before the one who he was persecuting. Now, the way in which Paul comes before the Lord here is eerily similar to that of John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, just after Jesus healed a blind man with the mud in the pool of Siloam, he says this, I came into the world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, We aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. So Paul, just like before he met Jesus on the road, just like the other Pharisees of the time, recognised themselves as the ones of the spiritual sight. Yet Christ stops them here, declaring that they are actually the blind ones. So as Paul is spiritually blind to the truth of Christ... Now in our passage, he is physically blind. He has to be led into Damascus. Now just as the Romans had bound Paul, so too he is now bound by light. This man who was at the top of his people, the top of the law, are now being led by his hands, visually bound by those who are with him. Now to be unbound, he ends up going to a devout observer of the law in Jerusalem, from verse 12. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear the words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptised and wash your sins away, calling on his name. From this point onwards in Acts chapter 9, we can see that this is the springboard for Paul's mission, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Now, further on in this passage, we see that Paul does address the crowd. Now, jumping down to the end of chapter 22, we're going to see their response. So from verse 21. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. 
The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid this man of the earth. He is not fit to live. Paul here is faced with the same fate as the martyr Stephen from Acts chapter 6. Now, having the phrase, rid him of the earth, it's pretty strong. Uh, Another translation says, wipe this man off the face of the earth. They don't want anything to do with Paul. They want Paul completely gone. But note why do they want Paul gone? Is it because he's just met Jesus? No. Is it because they want to meet Jesus? No. Is it because they've just bound him and then realised Agabus said that in chapter 21? No. It's the key verse in verse 21. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I'll send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul has just retold the story of his salvation, how he has met the one who the prophets testified about in the Old Testament, the one who has done wondrous miracles among the Jews, the one who has proclaimed himself to be the one who is sent to save an unworthy people, but they just respond with anger and frustration, ultimately leading to further on in Acts for the Jews plotting against him, just as they did to the one who Paul met on the road. Now, where does the rubber hit the road for us? Some implications. Now, we have seen the Jewish response to Paul's proclamation of his saving faith in the attempt to kill him by the Jews and likewise by the Romans, who are actually in fear of the Jews and unable to uphold their own requirements, even for their own citizens. Because of their pride within their own systems, whether that was religion or politics, they were blinded to the truth. So a question we could ask ourselves is, does our pride hinder our trust in Christ? Now, I started today with the question, are you comfortable, and more specifically, are you comfortable in the gospel? But we found today, and out throughout the book of Acts, the gospel is truly uncomfortable. Paul is the one who is earnestly on the road to Jerusalem and eventually to his death in Rome. And he knew that the gospel would divide, and he knew that he would suffer. But he continues to proclaim it, even though it is not received. By the Jews who knew the Messiah, believed it to be true, but they just could not see it through their own eyes. So where does our own pride hinder our trust in Christ? Now, it may be some, the case that some people here today don't know Christ as their Lord and Saviour. But I urge you to think, what in your life, whether it's pride or something else, is halting you to come to know Jesus? Now, for those among us who do know Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, pride is still an issue that we face. Could we be confident in our church attendance to save us? Are we prideful in our own good works? Are we prideful in the things we do at church? Many things to think about. Second invocation, the gospel has many hard truths. Now, the gospel is very hard on its truth, as we've seen, and many things of our sinful hearts want to fight against it. The hard truth of the gospel for the Jews was that it was going to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. But they could not recognise it. They were blinded. Now, we all have this issue, and as we reflect on these questions, um, they're also questions pointed back to myself. 
what things within the scriptures go against what our heart wants. Um, as I hopefully finish uni very, very soon, how could I use the money that I will earn from a job to serve the kingdom? Would I pursue success? Would I want to live comfortably in the worldly sense? Can we use our families or partners to make excuses for living for Christ? Do we seek things of this world as a rejection of the hard truths of the gospel? Now, the truth of Christ doesn't adhere with any worldly system, and those who hold to it do not fit in either. So may we be people who in all things adhere to the truth of Christ, adhere to the truth of the gospel in his death and resurrection, and proclaim this until he returns or calls us home. Let me pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Paul as he followed and served Christ. May we be people who recognise our own pride, consider the hard truths of the gospel and continue to hold firm to its message always. And we pray in your son's precious name. Amen.